John chapter 14. Today, we are starting a five-week series called The People, People of the Spirit. And it just so happens, does anybody know what today is? It is Pentecostal Sunday. Now, this is in relation to a Jewish feast or festival, and it is, it is actually in Leviticus chapter 23 where, where God lays out particular feasts for the people of Israel to celebrate, and one of those feasts is called the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Weeks was, they were instructed to celebrate this feast 50 days after the Feast of Passover. And in the Greek translation, uh, Pentecost means 50. And so that's why we have this word Pentecost, which comes from the Greek. It just means 50. And it relates to this uh, Jewish festival or Feast of Weeks, which is 50 days after the Passover. And the Feast of Weeks and two other feasts were three very important feasts where God instructed every Jewish male has to go to Jerusalem. They have to travel to Jerusalem personally physically, and make particular offerings and sacrifices to the Lord at the temple there. And for the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, in the Greek terminology, um, they would present or celebrate, it was a harvest feast, and they would celebrate uh, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. It was a celebration and a reminder of how God had supplied to them and they were going to submit to the Lord the first fruits of their wheat harvest. And what makes that so significant is that on the day of Pentecost, while the 120 people instructed by Jesus before he ascended, they, he told them to go to Jerusalem and tarry, wait for the promise of the Father, wait until you are endued with power from on high. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came as a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire upon their head, they began to speak in other tongues, and multitudes of people were drawn to this occurrence. And it's, and it's directly after that that Peter preaches a message and 3,000 people are added to the kingdom of God, which would represent the first fruits of many thousands and millions who, who would be one to Christ in this new dispensation called the church age, which was birthed by this Pentecostal blessing. That is the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, I did not, as, as, though, as perfect as it is, I believe, though I did not intend to start this series on Pentecostal Sunday because, to be honest, I don't keep up with the Jewish festivals and different things like that. Um, to the Jewish individuals, it's, it's still very, very important. And, and, and dates and times and festivals and what you eat and what you don't eat is not important to God. It's through Christ he has fulfilled the law and all righteousness. But I think it's pretty neat and a wonderful day to start a series on the person of the Holy Spirit on Pentecostal Sunday. How about you? You agree with that? And so when we, when we say we are Pentecostal, we believe in the Pentecostal experience, it just means we believe in that experience that happened on the day of Pentecost. Sometimes people have a misunderstanding of what Pentecostal is. It's a certain look, a certain appearance, and that's just not what it is. It's a it's a biblical experience that we believe in and we think is absolutely paramount and necessary for your Christian walk and witness to live a bold life so that the Lord can minister through you and ultimately so people can be saved. 
through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it all comes down to. And I look forward to the next five weeks expounding and teaching and preaching and lauding the ministry of the third person of the Godhead, which is the Holy Spirit, and discussing Him and His activity in our life. If, if they could put up that next slide. Here is my prayer and here is my intention. Here is my goal for this next five weeks. Here's what I'm praying for us, and I want you to be praying for us as well and for yourself. Here is my goal. At the end of this, I'm praying for a deeper understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in earth and in our personal lives. I am praying for an increased sensitivity to his leadership and influence in our lives. I am praying, and I want you to be praying, for an intensified hunger for his abiding presence and power through the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I want you to pray, and I'm praying for a desire for the gifts of the Spirit in order to be used for the edification of God's church. As Paul gives direction in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And ultimately, I'm praying through this Pentecostal blessing and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives, I'm praying for an evangelistically-minded church who boldly proclaims the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinners. I'm going to get ahead of myself, but do you know, there's a, there's a book written by uh, Charles Crabtree, I think it's an AG book, it's a gospel publishing house book, and it, the name of the book is called The Pentecostal Priority. And the Pentecostal Priority at the end of the day, it must be evangelism. Because what propagated the church and what, 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 what made Jesus say, stay till you receive power, because you need this power to proclaim my name so that people would be saved. And it spread like wildfire after the Holy Spirit was given. And the Pentecostal priority is not just to circle the wagons and have a good old time and a two-hour service. It's to live a life that is Christ-like, Spirit-empowered, so that we can see people saved. If we don't see people saved, what are you doing? What is the point of the church of Jesus Christ? We, may just, we might as well just hold up and wait for His coming or wait for our death and go to heaven. You're called to be a representative for the person of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that's what Pentecost is all about. It's more of Jesus. It's the exaltation of Jesus because it's by him and no other person by, by which men are saved. There's no other name under heaven by which men are saved except the name of Jesus Christ. So this is my prayer here today. For the remainder of this next Five weeks, I want to encourage you to stay engaged, to be, to be praying, to come here with expectation, to, to, to really expect the Lord to move in your life. If you're not filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because I just got to be honest with you, the crescendo of this series will be the fourth week. It's, go, it's going to be the presentation of we need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not just so we can say, oh, I'm Pentecostal. No, because I need God. And the world needs to see God. 
They need to see Jesus. And so we're going to put immense, immense, immense priority upon that. And I want you to have a high expectation. For those of you who are not filled, I mean, what a wonderful timing. My wife, after 11 years of seeking, two weeks ago, filled with the Holy Spirit in our bedroom, the privacy of our home. It can happen on your way home from church, on your way to church, or anywhere in between. My mom, when she was, I think, 17 years old, was she 17? 16 or 15? She was 15 when she was baptized in the Holy Spirit, all by herself in her room, is when my mother received that blessing. So I want to start here today, though, in what may seem like a rather odd start to this series. The title of this message is Fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have three, just three scriptures I'd like to share with you here at the onset. But before we do that, let's pray. Pray with me. Pray for the people in this room that our hearts would be knit tighter to the person of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be with us here today, that your preeminence would be tangible here. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would give us ears to learn, to hear, and to receive because you are our teacher you are our advocate, and we have this anointing from you. I pray that we would be presented to the Father as holy and as righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ. God, deal with every heart here today. Help us to see the absolute necessity that we have fellowship with Father, Son, Holy Spirit here today. Help us to understand what it is to be participants in the life of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Acts 2.42 says this, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And in parentheses I have there the Greek word koinonia. They continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, that is koinonia, and the breaking of bread and in prayers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship, that is koinonia, with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the benediction to this letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion or the fellowship, which is the same Greek word, koinonia, of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. As you can see, this Greek word for fellowship or communion is maybe a word you're familiar with if you've been a Christian for any period of time or you've done Bible study or word studies. This word is koinonia, and it's a uniquely Christian word. Uniquely Christian word. In the trans, the Septuagint, the Hebrew Septuagint, that is the translation of the Old Testament scriptures into the Greek, which is called the Septuagint, there is no mention of this Greek word called koinonia. It's a word that is very unique, and it seems these early Christian writers, they coined this word for a very specific use in New Testament scripture. Throughout the, the uh, books of the New Testament, this word koinonia is used in various ways. It's used 43 times. 43 times we see this word in the New Testament. And this word, it means, just as this English translation we saw in these three verses, it means fellowship or communion. But it also means intimacy and joint participation. Joint participation. 
And we read in Acts 2.42 that because of their mutual love in Jesus Christ and the inception into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit with his seal and witness in their life, all these people had a common love for Jesus. And it says that they just could not help but spend all their time together encouraging, praying, encouraging one another, praying and eating meals with one another. And, and, and their, their relationship with each other and their interaction with one another, it says that they were in continual fellowship with one another as they gave themselves over to the apostles' doctrine and prayer. It's the very reason you're here today. It's the very reason you're here today. I'm telling you, if you are a Christian, you will have this innate desire to be with other Christians because that is what God has put in you to do. That is a normal thing because you have been placed into the family of God. And where you may not be very close, be very close to your blood relatives, that is your mother or your father, your brother or sister, you may be extremely close to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. I remember we were, we were in Antigua for uh, Kimmy's um, brother's wedding in 2014, and we were going to this charter uh, fishing trip, and we got in, and we, we got in this van, this taxi driver, and I noticed he had a Bible in his front seat. And so I started talking to him, and he was a part of a local church, and we just started talking, and I felt like, man, this guy's my brother. Uh, you're, you're in the middle of the Caribbean, a little Caribbean island. I don't know who you are. I, I don't remember his name, but there is this, this brotherhood, this family that we have with the people of God. And, and sadly, in regards to division that you see in our, in our, our country, there, there's division in the body of Christ, isn't there? And, and sadly, we see that because we're, we, live a, we are imperfect. We have to still deal with this flesh and, and overcome the things that are still in us. And so we, we butt heads sometimes. And, and it doesn't mean that you don't care about doctrine and that you don't have... Uh, friendly, spirited debates with people over doctrinal things that you don't agree with them. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if the foundational truths of the Word of God are real in this brother's life, I don't care if they're Baptist, Methodist, or whatever, they are my brother and sister in Christ because we both have faith in the Lord. There's one spirit. There's one baptism. There's one Lord, not a denominational spirit and Lord for this one, that denomination, that one. And so we should have this brotherhood, sisterhood with the people of God. But that's not where I'm going here today. There is a fellowship, there is a communion, there is a koinonia, an intimacy, a joint participation that you have been invited into that has eternally existed before you were even born. There has been an eternal koinonia, an eternal fellowship or communion since forever. And that is between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And before we go and, and concentrate on the third person of the Godhead, that is the Holy Spirit, before we, we concentrate on Him, we, we need to understand the nature of our salvation and us being placed into the family of God, but really being placed into the family that is in heaven first. The fellowship 
that you now are able to partake into a fellowship that has eternally existed with the eternal triune God. And so before we we get into specifics regarding the person of the Holy Spirit, we need to look at and see him in context of this fellowship he has with Father and Son. But because if we do not start here, one reason, because the Holy Spirit is the least understood of the three, isn't he? He's the least, misunder- he's the least understood and the most misunderstood. And if we don't start here and give real formation to the, who the person of the Holy Spirit is in relation to the Godhead and in relation to your communion in that family, which is God, you may be tempted, we may be tempted to view the Holy Spirit kind of as this fuzzy or abstract theological concept or curiosity. That um, the Father you know. You can, in your mind's eye, I see the Father. Okay? I see his work in creation. Jesus, I know. He, he, he literally took on human flesh, and we talked about that last, last week. In human flesh, there was the, the divine and humanity simultaneously. But, but the Holy Spirit, for some people, he's this some, he's, he's this some ethereal force just out there. And if we don't start here today... You may be tempted to view the Holy Spirit as being independent of the Father or the, and the Son or to view Him as being unlike the Father and the Son. And as a matter of fact, there are some groups who don't even believe the Holy Spirit is a person. They view Him as a force or an influence. The Holy Spirit is a person who has personality. And we'll look at that here in a moment. And, and for those of us who... who who are Pentecostal, and and we especially appreciate and we value the altar, the place where we meet God and and we pray and we commune with Him and and we seek an experience, a real experience with God. For those of us who, who, who maybe really value this and are from the Pentecostal tradition, and you know exactly what I mean, We ought not to view the Holy Spirit as one we just come down the altar to to get zapped by, get our fill of him, and then go on our way. Okay? You you can't view him as though he's he's some handy uh, uh, piece of medicine in a medicine cabinet, and then when you're really in a hard spot, you run to him, you get overflowed in an experience with him, and then you go on your way. The Holy Spirit is not an experience. He is a person whom you experience. And there is a difference. And if you don't understand that, you will misunderstand him, his place in the Godhead, and consequently, his work in your life. There's a young lady I know, talking about misunderstanding the Holy Spirit, there's a young lady I know who told me, not too long ago, she said, when I was younger, I misunderstood the Holy Spirit. She said, when I was younger, I used to think the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit were two different entities. She said, I thought the Holy Ghost 
was the more powerful demonstrative side of the Holy of the Spirit. And I thought the Holy Spirit was the more tender dove-like quality of the Spirit. Now, depending on what translation you grew up on, that might be a problem because New King, or King James says Holy Ghost. And uh, they're the same thing. Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. Same thing. And so that's just an example to show there, there's some misunderstanding even in the Pentecostal church as to who the person of the Holy Spirit is. And so let me just kind of give you a basis, a, a, a key thought, a, a main idea that you can walk away with here today that kind of has helped me to form this message. I, I have a book that is written by Dr. Stephen Land, and it's called Pentecostal Spirituality. It's a very hard book to read. It is a high, high theological book, but it is a Pentecostal book written by Dr. Stephen Land, but he says this, and this is what I really want us to use as our compass here today. Here's what he says. The Holy Spirit brings the Father and the Son who, together with the Spirit, abide with and in the believer. Is it up there? It is. The Holy Spirit brings the Father... And the Son, who, together with the Spirit, abide with and in the believer. There is this mutual indwelling wherein, wherein I am dwelling in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then he dwells within me. And this is extremely important right here. Remember that there, but also remember this. Remember this is extremely important right here. It is important that we understand that when we experience the presence of God, which we value, which we desire, where when we have a, a, a song service, we, 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 we desire the tangible presence of God, but it's so important. That when we experience the presence of God, we are experiencing, and remember, we are experiencing the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because where the Son is, the Father and, the Son, the Father and Spirit are as well. Where, where the, the Father is, so is the Son and the Spirit. And etc. So whenever you are experiencing God, you are experiencing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's extremely important to understand this because this will be a bedrock and a foundation for, I think, your very life when it comes to your relationship with the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be too theological here today, but I think you can handle it, okay? I, I, I think there's a great lack of theology in America today to our detriment. And so just, just, just bear with me here for a moment, okay? We all know of the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, that it is the most confusing doctrine you could possibly try to understand in the Word of God, isn't it? Absolutely mind-boggling how that God is one. As we read in Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, God is one, the Shema. God is one. 
He is one in essence, but he is three persons. He is three persons. How does that, how do you, how do you make that jive? When you start thinking about the Trinity, it's, it's, it's just, you can't reconcile how does this work in my mind. And, and really, the reason is because how can finite little creatures like you and I understand an infinite God? You can't. But it doesn't mean we can't attempt to understand what we can from Scripture. And so, simply stated, the doctrine of the Trinity states that the one God eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. They have precisely the same nature and attributes and worthy of precisely the same worship, confidence, and obedience. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. Every single one of them are God, but we serve one God. This, over the centuries, has led to great heresy. You have a Unitarian view of God where, uh, where you would have oneness, if you will, where the Spirit is the Son and the Father is the Son, and He just takes different modes, if you will, and there's a denial of the existence of the Trinity. Or there's a tritheism where basically they develop and say there's three gods, which is not the case. One God, three persons. And to say that they are three distinct persons means they have personality, which involves knowledge, feeling, and will. Three distinct persons, one divine nature in its entirety. So when you read the Word of God, we know God the Father is principally credited with the work of creation. God the Son is the principal agent applying the word of redemption to humanity. God the Holy Spirit is the deposit, our first installment, guaranteeing our future inheritance. And yet, while the Father is preeminently the Creator, yet the Son and the Spirit are described as cooperating with the Father all the more. And Where Scripture tells us that the Father creates, the Son redeems, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies, yet in all these operations, all three are there. We understand that the Son is preeminently the Redeemer, yet God the Father and the Spirit are described as sending the Son to redeem. We understand the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier, yet the Father and the Son cooperate in that work as well. They are always together. They may have a preeminent task, but they are always together. You remove one, you do not have God. Three persons, one God. And so there has been, think about this, there has been for all of eternity an eternal koinonia, an eternal fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you and I have been made in the image of God. And this fellowship, fellowship always requires relationship. Fellowship always requires relationship. If there is fellowship between individuals, there is relations there and how they relate one to another. And it's the same with the Godhead. 
And so as you look, Arthur uh, Mark Shaw in his portrait of the Trinity on the, in the Gospel of John identifies four characteristics which describe the relations between the members of the Godhead. You see in the Godhead full equality. This is a nature of a fellowship involving relationship. You see full equality. You see glad submission. You see joyful intimacy. You see mutual deference, which simply means a willingness to carry out the wishes of others. And so, for instance, when you just read the first chapter, the prologue of John chapter 1, you see all this encapsulated in the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son and the Father are presented as equals in that the Word was with God and the Word was God. Yet, though the Son enjoys relationship of full equality with the Father, He gladly submits and He becomes flesh lived among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And He gladly submits to the Father. And then the Son, He defers to the Father by seeking to make the Father and not Himself to be known and to be glorified in John 1.18. And then, but also, they enjoy intimacy one with another. Where in John 1.18, it says that the only Son, begotten of the Father, He is the only one who has seen Him and He declares Him, for He is in the bosom of the Father. There's this intimacy, and yet there's this full equality, and yet there's this glad submission, and yet there's this joyful intimacy that you see in relation one to another. And then in John chapter 14, a part of the upper room discourse, you see this intimacy, this equality, this deference and submission between the Father and Son. They now share it with a third person called the Holy Spirit. And, and when you read John chapter 14, it's full of wonderful things. We're going to read that here in a moment, but you're, you're probably already bookmarked there. But if you looked at John 14, 13, here's what Jesus says. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper or advocate or comforter, parakletos, to be with you forever. And you see here, the Spirit comes he is like the Son. He's not one different from the Son. He is one like the Son. He comes as equal with the Son. And yet in John chapter 16, he says that the Holy Spirit will come and he will not speak of himself. He will come to glorify, take of mine and glorify me, he said of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will take what is of me and he will glorify me and reveal it to you. And so, as an aside, when you look at the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, isn't it a perfect model for the body of Christ? When you see the character of God, it kind of looks like human beings, doesn't it? But it's not because God is created like us. We've been created like Him. And what works best is what is in accord with His character, His nature, and His intimacy in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so, here, here's, here's where it comes down. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Let me wind it down right here. Myra Perlman says it wonderful. He's an old AG guy. 
has our wonderful book called Knowing the Doctrines of, of, of God, Knowing the Doctrines of the Bible, 1937. He says this, the Trinity is an eternal fellowship, but the work of man's redemption called forth its historical manifestation. The eternal fellowship of the Trinity, which my mind cannot, cannot fathom eternity, they have always existed together. And they've always had this intimacy one with another and this fellowship and relation one with another. Now, through God's desire to redeem men, he now manifests this fellowship he has with himself. He now manifests it for us to now be partakers of. You are now called to be partakers and inside of this eternal fellowship. So look at John 14. John 14 15, and we're going to see the beauty of this very thing. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Well, how does he come to us? Through the Holy Spirit. But is it the Holy Spirit or the Son? It's both. And the Father is there because carry on. A little while longer in the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Now he's saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, one that's like me. He's going to dwell and live in you, and I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now he's saying, I and the Father are one. Look here, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will koinonia. We will include this finite, sinful, pitiful creature who doesn't deserve it. We're going to give him the privilege to particip participate in the divine life that has eternally existed, which is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is amazing. This is amazing. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And as I stated earlier, the meaning of koinonia, being fellowship or communion, it also denotes intimacy and joint participation. Your salvation... Your salvation and your inclusion into the body of Christ, into this eternal fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Your salvation is not some golden ticket you got X number of years ago. Whenever it was that you got saved. 
And it's, it's especially in the American gospel and understanding of what salvation is, it's like it's just a point in time salvation was given to you, now I have it, as if it's a golden ticket that admits me into heaven one day. But our salvation is not merely an accounting miracle that erases sin and somehow imputes righteousness to us. Our salvation is so much more than that. And Dr. Land says this, our salvation is participation in the divine life more than the removal of guilt. Your participation in the divine life is more than the removal of guilt. Yes, judicially you stand justified before God, but oh, that's only just the tip of the iceberg. Because you have been called not just to go to heaven one day, you have been called to participate in the divine communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just as Paul told the Athenians on Mars Hill, he said, It is He, for in Him we live and move and have our being. It is in Christ, by the Spirit, presented to the Father, I am in God, the family of God, the fellowship of God. I have joined an eternal communion that has always existed. And every day that you live, every single day that you live, you are living in Christ through the Holy Spirit before the Father. And oh, doesn't this make much clearer and dearer the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? It surely does for me. If you understand this eternal communion between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So before we chose to delve into the personal Holy Spirit, we need to see him in context of the triune Godhead and our relationship to him. And Steve, come help me, please. rest of the worship team. And so as I said at the very beginning, my intention is to make the final emphasis being the baptism in the Holy Spirit because that was Jesus' final emphasis. Don't do anything until you receive this power. And so it's my deepest desire that we would have this increased hunger. But let me just show you, by, by the words of a man named David Wesley Myland, he wrote a book in 1910 in defense of the Azusa Street Revival. He was a part of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. He experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He, he was, he was um, a mentor to some of the young men who were the founders of the Assembly of God and, and he was actually healed, of, uh, he was paralyzed in his, his legs, and he was healed, miraculously healed, and filled with the Holy Spirit. And he, he was just a, an evangelist for this, this message of Pentecost. But see how he relates Pentecost to the Trinity. And this is absolutely of utmost importance that we get this. So that if we don't get this, we will be unbalanced and off. We have to get this. And he wonderfully states this. In this book from 1910, do not think that all these displays of the, are of the Holy Spirit alone. He understood something very, very crucial to the doctrine of the Bible. The Father is there. The Son is there. 
and the Holy Spirit is there. Whenever God has come to anyone, the whole Godhead is manifested therein. It is dynamic of the Godhead. The things of the Spirit are displayed in His sovereign working. This movement must be saved from saying that there is never any Spirit until, until there is Pentecostal fullness, and also after we get Pentecost from saying it is the Spirit only. No, it is God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You see, you cannot be saved except that you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We learned this in Romans chapter 8. You're not a child of God unless the Holy Spirit comes and convicts you and woos you and draws you and then regenerates you and then he places you in the kingdom of God as you trust and place faith in the finished work of Jesus upon the cross and you're reconciled to the Father. You have the Holy Spirit. And he's saying there, let us understand let us understand that if you don't have this Pentecostal blessing, that is, baptism of the Holy Spirit, you do still have the Holy Spirit. Because you can't be saved except by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But this Pentecostal blessing, this, this endowment with power, it is something in addition to regeneration. And he's saying, let us understand also that when we experience this Pentecostal blessing, it's not the Holy Spirit alone. No, all are there because they have always been there together eternally. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are all there because they are God. He is God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. One God, three distinct persons. One in essence. And so when Jesus said, as we just read in John chapter 14, he's going to pray to the Father. He's going to send another helper, one like Jesus. He's going to abide in you. The spirit of truth, the world can't receive it, but you can receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. And he's going to dwell with you. He's going to take up residence in you. He's going to be with you. And, and then Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. And, th and then he says, me and the Father are one. And so what you have experienced in God is not the Father alone, it's not Jesus alone, it's not the Holy Spirit alone, it is God revealed to us in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This must be your starting point when it comes to the person of the Holy Spirit so that we are not off balance and so that we can truly reap the blessing and benefits of this divine participation. Would you stand with me? Stand with me. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful privilege for all of us who call ourselves Christians, who are Christians, who have been supernaturally saved from sin, from the flesh, from the devil, by the power of your blood, Jesus. I thank you for the testimonies represented here today. I thank you for your work, Father. I thank you for your work, Jesus. I thank you for your work, Holy Spirit, in all of our lives who are Christians here today. Help us to understand this. And though we may only be able to grasp just the very little surface Help us to be grounded upon this truth which is revealed to us in your word, O oh God. Help us, Jesus, to see the importance of every single member of the Godhead. 
Help us to see this eternal fellowship and communion which we are now grafted into. Help us here today, oh God, to see the importance of your work in every facet of our life here today.